Hi, I'm a 26-year-old male. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am from Rockford, Michigan. Anyway, I work in a place where selling sports goods is our game. I am the lead of a department with all the footballs, basketballs, baseball, boxing gear, etc. We also sell firearms there. As a manager, I must sell firearms. I enjoy it most of the time. Sometimes we sell over 20 guns a day. Those days I hate it. Anyways, we do our background checks through FBI and ICS, but per the ATF, we can deny anyone a firearm to anyone we see fit. This is where the story begins. I've been there for just over a year. I've seen my fair share of guns go out the door, but I've also had to deny some people and I've gotten into some arguments about it. This one day we were steady at about one or two firearms per hour. It was about 7 p.m. and this guy comes in to ask to look at a shotgun, the Rock Island VR-80. I ask to see his ID. We take everyone's ID so they don't try to run away with the gun. He gives me his ID and I show him the gun. He starts to fill out the paperwork, name, address, social. Then he gets down to the yes-no questions. He marks yes to being a felon. I explain to him that I cannot sell a gun due to his felon status. He then asks if I can have a new form to fill out. He said it was a mistake. I told him no. He lost his mind. He told me I was the biggest piece of crap in the world, that I should just sell him the gun because he was an American and it was against his amendment to not sell him one. All sorts of stuff. I was getting angry myself. I'm usually a very calm guy, but I was getting heated. Finally, one of the other managers came over and told him that he had to leave. He refused. We told him we were going to call the cops if he did not. He gave us both the middle finger and stormed out. At 10 p.m., we left the store, locked it up, and started to walk towards our car. It was me, my manager, his fiance, our shoe department guy, and our regular gun guy who was in the bathroom during the whole ordeal. Everyone besides me and the shoe guy left. We were talking and laughing about stuff. He's an older gentleman and does impressions of John Wayne. He had me cracking up. That is when I noticed a car in the parking lot with someone inside of it staring at us. I told Ross and he did not care and said to hell with them. We were both there for another 10 minutes. Ross got in his car and drove away and I did the same. I put a podcast by Larry Lawton, the ex-jewel thief, on and head down the road. I got about a mile or so down when I realized I was being tailgated. I ignored it at first and really did not care, but they got closer and closer. Finally, I brake checked them. They slammed on their brakes and I sped up. The car sped up too. It got right next to me and I looked over and realized it was the same guy from inside the store. He had this look of pure hatred on his face. I was freaked out. He tried to cut me off and force me into the Meyer parking lot. I went around him and sped up. It was slightly drizzling that night, and I saw him lose control for a second. I got on the highway and drove home. I'm an idiot. I should not have done that. I get home and get inside. I lock the door, and I tell my roommate what is happening. They have a little girl of two years old, and I told them I'd just be grabbing a few things and leaving. I went to my room, which is in the front of the house. That is when I saw the guy in the streetlight. He had a baseball bat in his hands and was walking towards the house. I told my roommates to go upstairs. I gave my male roommate my Taurus G2C. 
just in case something happened to me. I tried to give my female roommate my Bushmaster AR-15, but she refused since she feared guns. I heard a crash. I looked out the window and the guy took off one of the side mirrors of my car. I grabbed my Rock Island 1911 45 ACP and my Mossberg 450 Bushmaster and headed outside. I had my rifle loaded as I left the front door. He was walking up the steps already. He must have gotten scared because he dropped the bat and put his hands up. He started to shake. I told him to never come around my house, friends, or my work ever again or I will blow his balls off. He just shook his head. I then told him he was going to fix my mirrors. I grabbed for his wallet and put a $100 bill on the ground. And then I told him to leave. He walked away shaking, and I have not seen him since. I always worry that he's going to come back to my house when I'm not there and mess with my roommates. I paid for my roommates to have a CPL class, so they are both more comfortable with firearms. I hope I never see that guy again. This event happened to me in April 2017 in Caracas. My then-girlfriend, now wife, and I had been staying at my mother-in-law's apartment for a few weeks because my mother's apartment, where we lived, was being remodeled at the time. For some context, the apartment where we were staying is located on the fourth floor of a relatively small 10-floor building, which was positioned right in front of the city's main highway. I say small because there are very tall buildings in my city, which were as tall as 40 or 50 floors, and the people that lived in these buildings suffered greatly when the elevators did not work. Imagine going up and down the stairs for 50 or 60 floors. That's a lot of exercise for one day. So there were a lot of things I had to get used to in that place. Chief among them was hearing the sounds of trucks, cars, bikes, flat tires, damaged exhaust pipes and occasional gunshots that came from the poor neighborhoods that were close to my girlfriend's home, which could be heard during the day and night. In contrast, my mother's neighborhood was usually very quiet, especially at night, so I had to change my sleeping habits a little bit. So I usually went to bed quite late at night, usually at midnight or 1am. This apartment was smaller than my apartment and it was located on a different side of the city, but I did not care about those things as long as I could get a good night's sleep next to my wife, since I suffered from insomnia sometimes. The first time I came to my wife's apartment, I noticed there was a small hill with a huge tree, some medium small-sized plants, bushes and patches of grass, which were right next to the highway, and this seemed a little creepy to me at night. On that hill, I noticed there was a small makeshift aluminum sack. I thought that was a little funny, and I thought to myself, well that's weird, maybe some hobo or homeless person lives there. If he does, he must be crazy to be living there. On the first two nights I stayed there, even though I could hear the loud sounds of the highway, it took me a while to fall asleep, but fortunately everything was okay and I was able to get a good night's sleep on those two days. But the third night, as much as I wanted it to be exactly the same, it was quite different than the first. 
I remembered it was late at night. I think it was midnight or even later, and I was almost sound asleep. I was listening to some horror stories on my cell phone to fall asleep to, just like I always did, however crazy that sounds. Suddenly, I was startled by the ear-piercing screams of some man or woman hurling a long string of curses at somebody or something else. This woke me up right away and scared the hell out of me at the same time. I thought to myself, what or who the hell was that? And I shook my wife's shoulder and told her, hey honey, did you hear that? And she was still asleep and responded, hear what? It was nothing, go back to bed honey. However, I heard the curses again, so I decided to investigate what the heck was going on. I got up from bed, rubbed my eyes, put on my slippers and walked slowly and quietly out of our bedroom towards the balcony, where I could clearly see the highway and the small hill next to it. Now I could still hear the curses more clearly, and it sounded like the voice of a deranged man, and I thought to myself, Maybe I was right, and there is indeed a homeless person living of that metal hut. I was now standing shirtless, in my boxers and slippers on the dark balcony, looking to that hill where I saw that metal hut on the first day I slept in my wife's apartment. Weirdly enough, I was able to see a small campfire and a barefoot man coming out of the sack who had long disheveled hair and a long bushy beard. He was shirtless and wearing torn pants that were almost destroyed. He came out of the small sack. He was smoking a cigarette or God only knows what drug he was taking. He was standing in that hill in the dark, screaming his lungs out and cursing a lot for some reason while he was looking towards the highway. I thought that this man must be crazy, getting high or drunk enough to be yelling at passing cars or the people or dogs that were all the way on the other side of the highway. This made me feel terrified, and I asked myself, what in holy hell is that guy saying, and isn't he cold? Because of this racket, there were some neighborhood dogs barking in this man's direction. I thought it was really strange for someone to scream so much, especially this late at night. Unfortunately for me, my mother-in-law was a night owl and usually slept in the living room, so she turned on the kitchen's light out of the blue to get some water and went back to sleep, which reflected a little bit towards the balcony. I turned my head around and was a little blinded by the glare of the light, but at the same time I was scared that this man would see me staring at him. At that moment I hid crouched below the window so the man could not see me, but I was horrified when I saw this man walk to the fire and angrily put out the fire with his bare feet, turn his head around from the highway to look at the outer wall of the building, and all the while was still cursing out loud, I thought to myself, well maybe he's having a bad trip or something. Suddenly, this crazy guy looked up at the building wall. He walked until he was right in front of it. He yelled, I can't take it anymore and the voices are driving me crazy, and started to repeatedly bash his head into the wall until his head was bleeding while he yelled, get out of my head. The sound it made was terrifying. When he was done, he touched his head with his right hand and cleaned the blood on his chest. Now he looked crazier than ever. Out of the blue, the guy looked up and noticed I was staring at him, so he yelled at me, 
What the hell are you looking at? Mind your own business, you idiot. Therefore, I was scared to death. So I threw myself to the balcony ceramic floor. I winced at how cold it was and hid there for a while. I thought to myself, out of sight, out of mind, right? The crazy guy kept screaming his curses at me. I decided that was enough for me and quietly crouched back to the bed. I felt horrified about what I saw and could not sleep that night, since all I could hear were my mother-in-law's snores and the guy's screams until 2am. The next day I felt extremely tired because I was not able to rest the night before. I told my wife about what had happened, so she told me, yeah, at some point you get used to that crazy guy and his screams. But she didn't believe that the guy bashed his brains into the wall and almost killed himself. So it dawned on me, what if I can hear this guy's screams tonight again? Should I call the cops on this guy? But I decided not to do it, because my country's police are basically useless. So I still don't know what to do about this crazy screaming man. His awful screams still give me nightmares. But I know I will not look out of the balcony at night again. Hey Swamp Folk, sorry to interrupt this video. I just need to take a quick moment to shout out today's sponsor, HelloFresh. Now, as you guys know, HelloFresh has been a sponsor on this channel more than a few times. They've helped me out a ton through these crazy times, especially when you're trying to cut out those pesky meal planning and grocery store trips. You can enjoy getting the dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. HelloFresh offers 23 or more recipes each week featuring a range of flavors, cuisines, and ingredients so you'll never get bored. Eating healthier has also never been easier with the low calories, carb smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options they have every single week. Honestly, I've been using HelloFresh for a little over a year now, and it's really helped me be able to eat healthier, have better portions, and be able to get dinner on the table in a timely fashion without having to run and be in those big crowds and risk, you know, getting COVID. Be sure to go to HelloFresh.com Swamped10 and use code Swamped10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Remember, go to HelloFresh.com Swamped10 and use code SWAMPED10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Check it out and see what everybody's raving about. Sorry, this story is pretty long. It happened just a few years back. I was 13 at the time and grew up in Boston. I used to go to dancing class and normally my mom would drop me off and then pick me up when it was over. The dance class was not too far from my neighborhood. After the first few months of going to the dance class, I had a day off one week, and I got an Instagram notification. It was a follow request from an account that I was not familiar with. The username consisted of letters, numbers, and emojis, and the profile picture was of a middle-aged man. The picture was pretty bad quality, but I could see he was bald and had a gray beard. His account had no uploads, but I didn't really think much of it. About a week after when dance class finished, I never thought this would be the last time I ever go to dance class due to what happened. When I waited for my mom, I usually waited around the back of the dance class building. 
but I could not get the urge to go around there. But I kind of forced myself and got the urge to go. But I was young and naive, and I still am sometimes. So where I normally stand and wait for my mom, there is a side street that is always dark and has no lights. I stood there for about 10 minutes or so, which is rather normal because my mom gets caught in traffic on the highway. So, I go on Instagram to pass the time when a car pulls up from the street next to me, which is not normal because of how dark it is, but I do not pay attention to the car. Five minutes probably pass, and this car is just parked there, and the car looked brand new with tinted windows, which made it impossible to see inside, especially in the dark. No one got out of the car, and if they did, I definitely would have heard the door opening and closing. That's when the windows went down and a man who looked familiar stared at me and said something along the lines of, Hey, sweetie, why are you by yourself? It's not safe at night. I said nothing and just pretended that I didn't hear him, and that's when I realized he looked a lot like the man from the Instagram account that had followed me. He said, Do you know the way to Cambridge Street? Obviously, being 13 at the time, I was not good at giving directions, and I also did not want to be standing around any longer. I told him I knew of Cambridge Street, but I did not know where it was. Then he asked me where I lived. I will give you a ride. And I said, no, I'm good. My mom will be here in a minute. He still asked if I wanted a ride, but I kept declining and was too scared to walk away as he might have followed me. Then luckily, my mom's car came from the corner and he drove away. After I told my mother everything, I set my Instagram to private and the guy found my dance class from my choreography post on my Instagram and he knew when I started and when I finished. I told my mom I did not want to go to dance class anymore. Now I go to a different class where I met my boyfriend Freddy, who I've been with for a year now. And to all of you out there, please do not share your school or class stuff on social media. It is not worth the risk. Stay safe. I don't know what that guy would have done to me, but I'm glad he didn't get a chance to do anything. It might not be the most disturbing story ever, but it is pretty freaky to those who have gone through something like this. My name is Savannah. I am now 18 years old. Before this story begins, I want to put a trigger warning for depression and self-harm in case there are viewers sensitive to those topics. At the time, I was living in Las Vegas, Nevada, especially the Henderson area. This was my sophomore year of high school. I graduated this year in Oregon, so it was quite some time ago, but I remembered it like it was only yesterday. I was incredibly sad at the time and I'm not sure I should call it depressed because I do not want to self-diagnose. It was nighttime, and I was thinking about the time I self-harmed in 7th grade. I only did it once, and I have never done it again. I'm never going to do it again. I was just thinking about it by myself. I was crying because I was thinking about what if I did it again, and I asked myself, do I want to do it again? It was all a thought, and it was all I could think about. It was kind of scary. This went on for what seemed like an hour in the completely silent room before something broke the silence. It was a voice. It was soft but firm. It sounded like a woman saying, It's okay. I felt my heart stop then skip beats. I stared to where I thought the voice was coming from, which was the corner between my door and my closet. This was not imagined. Because of my erect mental state, I can absolutely promise you that. 
there was nobody else awake but me because of my aunt's sleep schedule of staying up until 3am and sleeping until 2pm because I went to a night school. This was around the time that I was only awake, of course, and nobody else was. I was the only one who witnessed it. I was the only one who it was directed towards. I felt calmer after that, like it was something like an angel watching over me to keep the bad thoughts away. That was until I went to sleep. I had a nightmare that night. In that nightmare, it was just me and my dad in a swap meet building with sheets covering the rooms and booths. I was taken behind one of the curtains and looked to see through from the inside. I called out to my dad, but he could not hear or see me. The lady pulled the knife and threatened me while holding my arm. I must have felt brave because I remember saying, You won't, before she paused and put the knife to my arm and sliced it. I remember staring at the dripping blood in a daze before waking up and it was daytime. I told my mom about what happened and she told me something that made sense. She gave the suggestion that what if the lady was saying that it was okay for me to do it again? That maybe that dream was a message. She said it's okay in the calmest voice that filled my room. What if she was saying that it's okay, you'll be okay, or it's okay to do it again? I'm not sure, and I'm still confused when I think about it. If the question is, if I saw a shadow in the corner with the voice, the answer is no. It was just her voice. I thought that that would be some good context to clear up when talking about what happened. I have not told anyone about this except for my mother and my sister. I have not heard another voice since. Hello, this story is about my friend. We are both girls and 17 at the time of the story. In my senior year of high school, a new girl was introduced to our class. She dressed in goth clothing, had a mohawk, and I could see visible scars all over her arms and even a burn on her wrist. She sat at the desk next to me, of course. I immediately became friends with her. Let us call her Devin for now. When I first met her, I knew there was something really off about her. After getting to know her, she told me all the different drugs she had done, how she ran away and was living with her boyfriend, Gary, and how he would buy drugs for her all the time. I'm not the kind of person who likes to get drunk or do drugs, but I wanted to be her friend since she seemed like she needed one. Also, she had the same name as my cousin, who was a drug addict, and in some way, I just wanted to help her, or at least be friends. We hung out one day after school and drove around in my truck. From that, I learned a little bit more. The way she talked was a bit confusing, and there was so much she told me, so I am just going to give a brief description of her life and what led her to my school. I learned that her boyfriend Gary was not actually her boyfriend. He was this old man who was a registered sex offender and a child molester, and she was living with him and having sex with him in exchange for rent and drugs. She then explained to me how her mom was a schizophrenic and her dad was some loser in another state. She had run away with several other girls, was a missing teen, prostituted herself, drugged, and ran away again with a different man, stole a car, and just was running from place to place, doing drugs and going from man to man, all while underage. Just awful stuff. Most of her prostitution sounded more like human trafficking and stuff like that to me. Just awful but that was not how she worded it. 
I remember looking at her and telling her that she really needed to get out of Gary's place the moment she found a better opportunity. I told her I could not offer her anything except my couch for a few days, but that she could not live with me. I just really wanted to help her get out of this bad situation. Next thing I knew, she showed up at my house the next day with her backpack full of stuff and told me she was ready. So that day after school, I helped her run away from the awful man, Gary. I did not want her to feel like she was running away again, so we went to the store and got snacks and made it seem like we were just going to have a long sleepover. But something scary happened. When we were waiting in line at the checkout, this older man who looked like how she described Gary saw us, and I could tell by the way this older man looked at us from afar that he recognized Devin. He walked over to us, and Devin turned to see why I looked so concerned. She awkwardly said hi to the man, calling him Danny. Danny asked if Gary knew where we were. Devin lied and told Danny, Yes, Gary knows. I'm just going to have a sleepover with my friend. As they talked, I quickly paid for our stuff and we ran to my truck. As soon as we were in the car, she explained that Danny was a pimp and friends with Gary, but he pimped out girls who were underage so he could probably be more accurately labeled as a human trafficker. He also sold drugs to Gary and would often try to buy Devin from him, but... Devin said Gary would protect her from Danny. Messed up, I know. Anyway, she stayed with me for a couple of days, which were stressful because now we had two dangerous men who knew she was gone and were looking for her. On top of all that, I had no idea what to do with her since I told my family she was going to be only over for the weekend. Also, my mom was in the hospital at the time and came close to dying. To say the least, both me and Devin were freaking out but I was happy that she was at least away from those men. We tried going to a woman's shelter, but it was downtown, and the outside of the woman's shelter was littered with scary men shooting up and just being all drugged up. One passed out by the door, inside the shelter. There were these old women who stared us down while we tried to fill up the paperwork in their closet-sized office. The place was dark, the rooms looked more like cells, and it was just overall a very disturbing place. Devin looked at me and we both knew she was not going to be staying here. We got back in my truck and she cried, I cried, and I promised we would not leave her there. Then, we went back home. Fun fact, the same parking lot that the woman's shelter was was the same parking lot that she had stolen a car from a year earlier with two men. After that, I explained to the school counselor my issue, and luckily two teachers took her in. Finally, she had a safe place to stay with a room of her own, and a chance of having a normal life with a real stable family. I remember I was absolutely ecstatic, but all good things come to an end. Before the school year even ended, she was back to doing drugs, meeting men who were way too old and creepy, and doing all sorts of stuff when she was alone in her new home. I was so disappointed but also not surprised. Eventually the teachers found out and they confronted her about the homemade bong they found. Sadly, Instead of telling them the truth, she just packed up her things and ran away all over again. They were not even going to kick her out. They just wanted to talk to her and help her out, but she ran away. I did not hear from her for a long time, probably a couple of months, but I knew she found another friend to stay with and switch schools. I was disappointed and just sad. I remember in class, these loud girls talking about her and mentioned that she hadn't been to class in a long time. I was her only friend in that class, so they asked me where she was. All I could say was she was gone and shrugged. Part of me wanted to cry, the other part of me was mad. She could have had a normal life. She could have had a family. The teachers she stayed with also felt betrayed once they learned of all the things she had done behind their back. 
and I, I felt guilty because I knew she had been doing this stuff the whole time. Not that I was ever involved. Now she is a stripper a few hours away. I still have her on my Snapchat, but we do not talk. It is easy to set her off, and I must be careful with what I say. She is sadly just like my cousin Devin, and like my cousin, I failed to really help either of them. At the end of the day, writing this, I realized this story is a lot sadder than scary, and I'm sorry if that does not fit on your channel, but it was scary for me during the time of helping her run away. I have since run into Gary and Danny at the post office. They know what I look like and where I live. It is known for having high rates of human sex trafficking, and to me, all of this is just scary. To Devin, I care about you, and all I want for you is to be safe, even if you make me angry with your actions. I am not you, and I cannot know how you feel, or why you do what you do. My uncle was a Navy Corpsman with the U.S. Marine Corps. For those who do not know, the USMC does not have their own medical personnel. Instead, the U.S. Navy provides medical care. My uncle served with the Marines during Vietnam. He saw some rough things in that country. But this occurred after he was transferred to Okinawa. His job there was working with the explosive ordnance disposal teams, and much of Okinawa in the late 1960s was still littered with unexploded ordnance left over from the Second World War. The fighting in Okinawa between the U.S. military and the Japanese Empire was brutal and protracted. They were still discovering old bunkers fairly frequently, and it was their job to collect all the old shells and such for safe disposal. This usually involved filling a pit with the old bombs, shells, and landmines and doing a controlled detonation. Well, after several months of this duty, a new kid fresh out of 29 palms joined the unit. Though my uncle was at the ripe old age of 25, he was the doc or the old man of the group. This 19-year-old was a prototypical FNG, standing for effing new guy and he was hazed a bit by the squad. Nothing too serious, mind you, but even at play, Marines can be a bit rough. The new guy was always in and out of my uncle's sick bay, getting a band-aid for this or that, mostly small scrapes and things. He began confiding in my uncle, telling him that he did not think he was fitting in well with his squad mates and was worried he was going to screw up. He was not the brightest kid, but he meant well. But... How this kid ended up on EOD duty was a complete mystery. A few weeks later, the squad is called out to the countryside to look over another abandoned Japanese bunker that had been discovered recently. They were picking over the area, and a kid found a box in the brush. He called it to the sergeant's attention, who was standing nearby chatting with my uncle. The sergeant turned to tell him to mark it, but back away. Instead, the young marine reached for it, and there was an explosion. Once the sergeant and my uncle picked themselves up off the ground, they ran over to where the marine had been standing. Whether the box had been booby-trapped or was just full of unstable explosives, they never determined. The kid was just... gone. Bloody rags and meat everywhere. About a month later, the same unit was prepping to do a controlled detonation of more collected, unexploded ordnance. About a month later, 
the same unit was prepping to do a controlled detonation of more collected, unexploded ordnance. I do not recall the explanation of how this happened, but apparently another team had loaded up the detonation pit with a load of bombs, covered it with soil, and left the area. It should have never happened. None of the warning signs were posted stating that this pit was loaded. As the team's vehicles approached the area, my uncle sees a marine at the edge of the woods nearby waving them down and yelling for a corpsman. The truck stops, and my uncle grabs his bag and runs off after the figure. Once he got to the tree line, he loses sight of the marine and calls out to him. Instead of continuing to hear the calls for a corpsman, he hears very distinctly the voice of the young marine who died in the explosion from right behind him. Sorry about that, Doc. Couldn't let you guys go any further. He whirls around, but nobody is there. A moment later, a massive explosion erupts from the detonation pit as the previous team sets off their charges. If their small convoy had continued, they would have been right at the edge of the pit when they went off. There was much storm and fury as multiple safety regs had been violated, and it led to a slew of new procedures to ensure that it would never happen again. As I said, my uncle saw some rough things during his time of service, but he said the only thing that gave him chills after all of that was the voice of a young marine who had saved his unit from beyond the grave. Hi, my name is Richard, and this is a story that took place when I was in the Navy. This paranormal event happened sometime between 2006 and 2007. All that aside, let us get into this. This story takes place on the USS Trenton, LPD-14. It was an amphibious loading ship commissioned in, I believe, 1962. I could be wrong, though. I was stationed on this ship for about one and a half years until we decommissioned it and sold it to the Indian Navy. I worked as a machinist mate in the engine room, or pit as we called it. I worked in one of the two engine rooms on board, one called the forward engine room and the other called the AFT engine room. The reason being is one sat a little more towards the front of the ship, hence the names forward and AFT, as well as the engine room. Each one was equipped with the main engine and shaft that ran, let us say 100 feet or so. So to support these shafts, there were huge bearings that held it in place. These sat in the place we called Shaft Alley. To gain access to this alley, you had to climb down a 30-foot ladder to reach a long dome-shaped alley that ran about 70 feet or so. Now that you understand a little bit about the ship, I will tell you the first part of this story. Back in 1962... When the ship was newly commissioned, it underwent its first cruise deployment to break in the ship, so to speak. Well, during this cruise, the AFT engine room had a major steam leak. No big deal, right? Yeah, think again. These pipes were pumping with steam at 650 PSI at 900 to 960 degrees. We were always told if a major steam leak happened, we only had a few seconds to get to any emergency space hatch or we would be steamed alive like a lobster. Well, in this case, two bolts broke on a flange, so initially the leak was only minor and the crew decided to continue to sail 
and operate the boiler. Wrong decision. Shortly after, the pipe ruptured, killing several sailors. Now this is where the story gets odd as I can verify that the previous part through research was definitely true, but I can't verify the upcoming part. Apparently, just before the pipe blew, the chief on watch had left the space for just a moment, which spared him from the horrible death his shipmates suffered. However, stricken with grief, he allegedly hung himself from a ladder in the AFT shaft alley. Now, that you understand this, please understand that everything I just told you about the steam leak and the chief hanging himself was unbeknownst to me when I arrived on the ship. I never knew any of this until after I had my paranormal experience, and I worked up the nerve to talk to someone about it. My experience starts like this. I was on a restricted, maneuvering watch inside the AFT shaft alley one afternoon. Basically, I had to sit down there and watch the shaft as the ship made various turns. If anything happened to a bearing or something else, I was supposed to report it immediately. Well, the watch could be very boring, and I had stood plenty of watch in both shaft alleys, and, honestly, it is easy to fall asleep, especially the forward shaft alley since it was dimly lit and painted dark colors, versus the bright white painted and well-lit AFT shaft alley. Regardless of this, I felt myself starting to want to drift off. However, I could not shake this feeling of being watched. At first, I shrugged it off as nothing. After a while though, this feeling continued to grow and grow, until after letting, let's say, an hour pass, I felt that something was glaring at me from the corner of the alley. The weird part? This part of the alley, despite the bright lights and white walls, maintained a perpetual state of darkness. At this point, I felt that whatever was watching me wanted to hurt me. I could not keep my eyes off that corner and fear started to swell within me. Despite this though, I stayed there, motionless, unblinking, watching this corner. After what felt like an eternity, I got a message through our sound-powered telephone securing me from the watch. Without missing a beat, I turned heel and ran for the ladder. As I climbed the ladder, about halfway up, I felt something latch onto my shoulders. It felt like a person grabbed my shoulders and was trying to pull me down. I could physically feel fingers digging into my shoulders. Panicking, I felt adrenaline surge through me, and I pulled and half-clambered my way up the ladder and heavy-heaved myself through the hatch. The craziest part? As soon as I got through the hatch, the feeling went away. Instantly, like it was never there at all. Scared, I did not speak of this to anyone for fear of being made fun of. It was not until I heard a buddy of mine talking about it that I opened up and told them about it. He told me about that accident back in the 1960s. He told me he had a paranormal experience down there too and refused to go down there ever since. This part of my life still haunts me to this day. But despite this, I love sharing it with people. My dad grew up in a small town called Lubanga, in southwestern Angolia. He was born in 1961 and as a child spent most of his time in the dry open land, playing with friends and hunting with his father. Now, this story takes place on the 29th of December 1983, when my dad was 22 years old. 
At this point in his life, he was working for a petrol company, driving a petrol tanker around the town to various petrol stations. Now, this day started like any other. Usual pickups here and there. Uh, one station, however, he parked the tanker and headed inside the station for the newspaper and a possible cigarette if he was lucky. My dad was familiar with all the different station clerks and stepping inside this one, he was expecting to see the usual shopkeeper, Roy. But there was no one running the till. My dad assumed he was in the toilet cubicle and he went to grab a paper. It was from the week prior, which satisfied my dad enough living in Lubanga during the Civil War, it was incredibly rare to get a newspaper even close to the correct date. My dad was no stranger to the Civil War raging in this country, but he tried to avoid conversation about it as it just made people upset. Unfortunately, this was borderline impossible considering it was the only excitement the old men in the town experienced. Anyway, upon reading the headline of the newspaper, South Africa troops retreat after the devastating attack. My dad placed the newspaper where it previously lay and scanned the desk for cigarettes. He spotted some rolling paper laid out across the desk with a sprinkle of tobacco already inside. My dad figured that Roy had started to roll a cigarette when something else had come up. He decided to wait for Roy to come back while he flicked through the collection of newspapers built up on the desk. After ten long minutes, my dad decided to carry on with his job and just believe Roy had gone for a long walk or something. He was walking to his tanker as the sound of plane propellers filled the sky. This was not unseen, but it was rather unusual in Lubanga. So, my father decided to lean against the cab of his big rig and watch the plane soar by. My dad was so sad to the juxtaposition of this destructive army. With the backdrop of the beautiful Angolian sky, it just seemed like such a contradiction. The planes were flying low over the Lubanga military base and my dad concluded there were two planes landing in the base after some battle of sorts. My dad's wondrous expression turned to curiosity as he saw two small black dots drop from the bottom of the plane. As the dots fell, my dad's face turned to dread as he watched the two planes fly far away. A loud explosion rattled his ears and he fell to the ground in shock. He looked at the fire cloud that surrounded the military base and watched as it crumbled and burned. He lay there, watching for half an hour as chaos ensued in and around his hometown. That moment was the day Lubanga fell. Weeks later, they found Roy's body. It had turned out he had gone on a walk and was found by two South African soldiers who interrogated him on the spot. He attempted to escape and retaliate and was shot dead in the process. This was a planned attack by the South African Army called Operation Clinker, and it can be found on the internet, although sadly little information is written about it. I think this story is very, very important for people to hear, as the Angolian Civil War is an event in history that takes countless lives and isn't talked about nearly enough. I believe people need to be educated on this historical landmark. One of my great uncles was a tunnel rat for the U.S. Army Corps during Vietnam. His job was going into the tunnels after they had been cleared and setting demolition charges. So, if the VK retook an area, they could not reuse the tunnels. Most folks who have been there will tell you it's one of the most dangerous jobs you could absolutely do. 
He told me stories about the wild men in the jungles. They would be in the tunnels too. The VK knew of them and took many steps to avoid them and warn each other. The VK used a different variety of warning systems and booby traps. The Corps would have to find them and dismantle them before demolition. He said they would find them in areas that went deeper into the caves, where they knew there was not a close logical entry or exit point. So, they were clearly afraid and cautious of something other than the opposing military forces getting the drop on them. Some of these deeper cave areas were set up like native camps, with things constructed from natural materials, clearly not military. It makes you wonder if the VK took these areas over from the rock apes and expanded them for military use in some places. All I can clearly recall of this story is him talking about native camps and wild men. Again, these were places where the VK were cleared out and it was the Corps' job to dismantle and destroy or reappropriate military infrastructure. Besides the tunnels, he talked a lot of the stranger, weirder things he had seen. Besides his group being followed around by these unseen wild men, the villagers would talk about these goblin, elf-like creatures. There is a name for them in Vietnamese, but I cannot recall what it is. In Spanish, they are called duende. They live near rivers, apparently. Also, they would quite often see strange lights and things moving across the rice fields and through the jungles while out on patrol. Just strange and supernatural paranormal things. He never talked about the actual war or fighting. He stayed stoic about those things, but he loved talking about the other stuff. He was not prone to wild stories or exaggerated tales, just really matter-of-fact this weird stuff happened and how there is a lot in this world that we do not quite understand. He died a few years back now, but he instilled in me a love for the weird and supernatural and inspired me to do all the paranormal research and writing that I do. I am a 29-year-old female. However, at the time of these events, I was 22 to 24 years old. I joined the United States Army to help people. I have always wanted to make a difference in the lives of others. So when I got stationed out in Colorado, I was nervous but hopeful. Once I was settled into my new unit and had met my new co-workers, everything seemed to fall into place. Everything was good, until it wasn't. It started out small like most things do. Sergeant C would snatch papers right out of my hands and then accuse me of not knowing what I was doing. He would ask me to do things for him immediately, although I was already doing something for someone who was of higher rank than him, and when I would tell him, he would say, I don't care, do what I told you to do. Eventually it progressed to something more like stalking. Sergeant C would come into work and ask me about my personal plans and appointments for the week. He would then have me ask him if I could keep these appointments or if I had to cancel them. Then, when I was able to keep the appointment, I had to write the time down on a marker board for him to see. When I went either on an appointment or to get the mail for my unit, which I did daily because I was the unit mail clerk, if I wasn't back when he thought I should be, he would call me or have a lower enlisted soldier call me and tell me to hurry up and get back. If I didn't answer right away... He would keep calling and texting me to call him back immediately. When I was at work, he would constantly hover over my shoulder watching me instead of doing his own work. He would also call me on the weekend 
and asked me where I was, what I was doing, and who I was with. When I started dating my husband, he came into work asking why I didn't ask his permission to date him. Again, I'm an adult woman. He would then require me to call him every single night before I would go to sleep and ask him if he needed me to do anything for him, even on the weekends. I forgot to call him, and he would call me. When getting the mail, I needed a license to drive a particular vehicle, and I had to take a class for it. I got all the required documents ready for it, but Sergeant C refused to let me take the class. So when I got mail by driving the vehicle without the proper documentation, he called me up at 8 at night in a Walgreens parking lot asking how I get mail, even though he and many others knew exactly how I was doing it. He kept repeating, how do you get mail? Over and over until I broke down and my husband had to take the phone and talk to him. It was so bad that I would cry every night and every morning. I eventually was told to go on counseling by my captain. When Sergeant C found out that he was the reason I was seeing a counselor, he cornered me in the back of the office where no one could see and he made me tell him that I was afraid of him and I couldn't work with him. Once, after already being in counseling for a while, my first sergeant told me that I would be going to NTC deployment training with Sergeant C, alone. I told him I wasn't sure that was such a good idea with everything that has happened and he eventually sent someone else with him. I had many people tell me they saw Sergeant C verbally and mentally abuse me, harass me, and no one did a damn thing to stop it. I had many panic attacks and had to be admitted to the ER after a verbal altercation with him where he chased me around the office yelling. Eventually, I left the army and now work as a civilian worker for an Air Force base. However, the scars still run deep as I'm still attending counseling. I take medication and have been diagnosed with extreme anxiety and PTSD. I suffer from panic attacks and nightmares about him. One day, I fear he'll find me again. I hope that one day things like this are taken more seriously and that no one has to deal with someone like him. If you live in the northeastern part of the United States, then you know that a huge snowstorm came in this week. Well, I was at my boyfriend's house and we could not find his puppy in his backyard. We kept calling his name, but he would not come to us like he always does. In fear that he somehow got out of the gated backyard, I grabbed my snow boots and ran to the back door that is in the kitchen. To note, my boyfriend was standing by the back door looking for the dog and his dad was at the front door talking to a postal delivery driver. We were the only three inside the house. I put on the snow boots and then hopped from one side of the kitchen to the other while trying to put the other boot on. As I slipped on the second boot, my foot slipped under me because my boots were still wet. I landed hard on my knee and my other leg flew out in front of me. I then landed on my butt and knew I was going to then fall backward and land on my head. At that moment, I felt someone catch my upper back and shoulders with their hands and then squeeze my shoulders. It kept me from falling backward and slamming my head against the tile floor. My boyfriend was standing in front of me and has a broken foot, so he would never have made it in time to catch me, so I assumed it was my boyfriend's dad. His dad asked if I was okay and what happened. I didn't think much of it and laughed it off as my knee was bruised. Later that night, my boyfriend's mom came home from work and I was telling her how her husband saved me from a bad fall. 
My boyfriend then cut me off and said his dad did not come into the kitchen until after I fell, and that he did not know what I was talking about. We even confirmed this with his dad as he, well, stated that he saw me sitting on the floor and came to check on the dog. I have no idea what I experienced or what could explain what I experienced. All I know is that I fell hard, and for whatever reason, something saved me from possibly getting really hurt. I cannot explain why I felt someone catch me or why they squeezed my shoulders after they caught me. Can anyone explain this experience? Or does anyone have any similar experiences? Also, the dog was fine. He was digging holes in the snow where we could not see him. This story happened to me about six years ago, but I think about it frequently because it's the only paranormal thing I ever witnessed that I'm 100% sure was absolutely real. I cannot help thinking, maybe someone has had a similar experience or has some theories. So, it was the middle of the winter, and it was terribly cold. There was a huge snowstorm going on outside. I went to my kitchen to make myself some tea. It was about 2300 hours. Note that I am used to going to bed between 3 and 4 a.m., so I was not sleepy at all yet. I was approaching the table when my gaze accidentally fell on the street outside. I saw two men in dark clothes walking there along the road. They struck me as unnatural right away because of how they were walking. Calmly, slowly, leisurely, talking and gesturing to each other. With how strong the wind was, people just could not walk like that. I adjusted the curtain to get a better look. It hid the men from view for less than a second, and when I looked, they were gone. The road they were walking is long and surrounded by absolutely nothing. They just could not hide anywhere during that split second. I was shocked and curious. The next night I checked again but saw no one. The night after that though, I saw them again. The same men were walking in a similar snowstorm, just as slowly. I stared at them for a while, then I moved the curtain again just out of curiosity, and then they were gone once again. I have never seen them again after this though. I still check the street every now and then whenever I approach the window and it's snowing outside. My impression is that I somehow peeked into the other reality where it is not cold and saw ordinary men walking and going on their way, but who knows what it really was. I did see some other strange things during my lifetime, but nothing I can fully be sure of. I am not easily impressionable, and I try to find an explanation for everything. This is the only case where I cannot find a reasonable answer. Maybe some of you have some ideas as to what they may be. I do not know much about paranormal activities, not in depth, so maybe such sightings are not so rare. Rory and I were halfway up Cross Couloir, a huge snow chute on the eastern side of Colorado's Mountain of the Holy Cross, when the snowstorm rolled in, almost a whole day early. That's when we knew we were in serious trouble. A few days prior, the TV weather forecast had told a completely different story. It reported a clear weather window well within our Thanksgiving break, 
which was one of our only opportunities to tick off Mount of the Holy Cross from our climbing bucket list. We'd already bagged several of Colorado's mountains that winter. We'd been eyeing the Holy Cross's steep, snow-filled couloir for the previous year. Our plan was to stash some overnight gear at a base camp, only a few miles from the start of our climb. From there, we'd go for the snow chute, and then hike out once it was night. We had planned to start the climb in the afternoon when the snow was just about soft enough to provide our boots with grip. So we arrived at the base of the snow chute at approximately noon. About 300 feet up, the snow was way deeper than expected, but the sky was a clear blue. We were on schedule, and the climb didn't seem like it was going to be too taxing. Additionally, we knew we'd have cell service on top of the peak. We didn't expect to need it, but it was considered a safety net. We were right about the cell service, but wrong about the two-hour climb. The higher we went, the deeper the snow became. Soon, it was loose and powder, all the way to the rock bed beneath. We were now moving more slowly than expected, but if the weather held, we'd still make it up before dark. A few hours into the climb, slogging upward within the steep couloir walls, we didn't even notice the dark clouds moving in from the west. The first snows came about halfway through the afternoon. By 5.30, it was pounding down, with the wind drowning out our attempts to communicate. If there was ever a time to quit, that was it. But behind us, the snow was kicked out and slick from our climbing, way too unstable for any kind of descent. So we went with our only viable option pushing on toward the summit and descending the much easier north ridge as quickly as we could manage. We tried to focus on keeping calm and pushing onward as darkness fell around us. The blizzard flashed through our headlamp beams and pelted our faces with ice. When I looked down at Rory, the terrified look in his eyes perfectly matched how I felt. By the time we finally reached the summit, around seven that evening, we figured the worst was over. We called our parents and told them everything was fine and that we were going to commence the hike down. But when we looked around, we saw only sheer drop-offs and total darkness. There was no way for us to find our descent, which is dangerously easy to miss, even in daylight. Plus, the wind up top was blowing something fierce, making it equally hazardous to approach any steep drops. With no choice but to hunker down, we settled under an overhanging lip of rock below the summit to wait out the storm. We had what we were wearing, goose-down jackets, insulated pants, hats, and gloves, plus a little food and water. We prayed that it would be enough for us to survive, but despite our pleas to the Almighty, conditions soon worsened. Strong winds tore through our improvised shelter, and our feet grew agonizingly cold. We took off our boots and socks and put our feet in each other's armpits, massaging our toes to keep the feeling in them. I couldn't get my mind off of thinking about how my parents would react to the news that we died up there that night. That's when the severity of our situation started to really dawn on me. 
We'd been feeling pretty cocky up until this point, but now I was truly frightened. Temperatures dropped to minus 20 degrees with the wind chill that night. I stopped shivering, a sign of hypothermia, but Rory and I stayed positive, and I'm convinced that, that was the only thing that got us through that night. I must have drifted off because the next thing I remember, the sun's warmth washed over us. Thankfully, the storm had passed, but the descent was still hard to find. We saw several ridges, and at the bottom of one, we spotted what looked like East Cross Creek, which we'd walked along two days before. We rappled toward it, thinking we were home free, but when we reached the creek, we realized that we'd accidentally gone down the south ridge, the opposite direction of the trailhead, and the one thing we didn't want to do, since at that point we lost all of our cell service. On the summit the night before, we worried about surviving. Now we were just annoyed with ourselves, low on food, and tired as hell. Still, we were confident we'd find our way out. Below the tree line, we managed to pick up a trail that took us to a spot we thought we recognized as the east side of the mountain. We weren't ready to admit that our delirious minds may have been playing tricks on us. We followed faint trails through the forest, turning here and there, as the compass dictated, but we always ended up back where we started. We later found out that locals call the area the Bermuda Triangle of the Rockies, Iron deposits in the rocks can throw off magnetic instruments, and our compass was taking us in circles. We knew we should have stayed put to wait for rescue, but we couldn't. With water-soaked boots, it was either move or lose appendages to the frostbite. Our optimism was running dry. I'd start to feel a frog in my throat, but in those moments you'd have to either crack a joke or cry. So we messed around, talked about girls sang along to Zeppelin songs, and laughed about whatever we could. Any distraction to keep us going. As the sunset went down on our second unplanned night out, we gathered a tinder and took out our lighters. But to our absolute horror, they remained waterlogged with a snowmelt. Despite our efforts to dry them, neither of us could get anything, so much as a spark out of either of them. By this point, Rory was too weak to continue, so I piled pine branches on the snow for us to spoon on top of. We managed to laugh at a few cuddle jokes, but we were starting to realize that our families didn't know if we were alive. That made it tough to keep things light. Soon we both stopped shivering, and neither of us could feel our feet. Matt turned to me. Dude, we could die out here, he said. I'm okay with it because... I'm still glad to not be on the couch playing video games, but this is much earlier than I thought it'd be. I'm not ready. We laid in silence. Rory fell asleep with his head on his right hand, a position that would cut off circulation, just enough to give him frostbite in his thumb. Again, temperatures dropped below freezing, and again we woke up in the morning, somehow still alive. We hadn't been hiking long, when we saw a helicopter. It was distant, but for us it took up the whole sky. Numb feet forgotten, we ran into a meadow, and I waved a jacket and a trekking pole with a bright red hat on it. The chopper flew past us. It circled back four times, before flying off. 
we felt like we'd watch our last chance vanish. That's when we finally broke down. There was nothing to say. Rory just laid his head on my lap, and we both sobbed. An hour later, the helicopter returned. It had only turned back to refuel, and this time it came straight towards us. We couldn't stop smiling. It was finally over. I was so elated I tried to hug a rescuer, who just threw me onto a jump seat and strapped me in. We were told to look for bodies, he said. As soon as we flew off, I could feel the adrenaline drain out of me. My whole body was in pain. I'd been too numb to feel until now. But still, I'd never felt better. It was honestly one of the lowest, then highest points of my entire life. I am an American Indian Native American and grew up on a reservation in the upper Midwest. Our home was 35 miles from the nearest large grocery store. Winter can cause treacherous driving conditions as roads can become snow-packed and slippery quickly due to the rural area. One winter, when I was in my early teens, my mother and I drove to the grocery store during a snowstorm to shop for food and other items. The snowstorm had dumped a lot of snow overnight, so we made our purchases and immediately left for home. We left early and were returning in early afternoon. The 35-minute drive would normally take about 45 minutes, but the road was snow-packed, and there were no cars on the road. The wind was drifting, the snow over the road leaving a white plain where the road should have been, making it incredibly hard to see. My mother drove well below the speed limit to drive through drifting snow and not skid off the road. We were at somewhere around the midpoint of the drive and just past my uncle's house. We did not stop as my mother did not want to get stuck overnight due to the deteriorating road conditions. So, we pressed on. Just past my uncle's house, the road goes over a hill with a long, gentle descent. The snow was falling lightly, and the wind had died down quite a bit, but the road was still covered. Only a long, white path lay ahead of us. No tire marks were on either lane, as there had been no other car on the road. As we began to descend the hill, my mother noticed something on the road, so she began to slow the car to a crawl. At first, I thought it was just a log or a piece of wood lying across the road. As we came closer, my mother and I noticed it was a man lying across the road. He was wearing a short-sleeve white t-shirt, jeans with black boots. He was laying face up and his arms spread out like he was trying to make a snow angel. His eyes were closed as he was just lying in the snow. My mother gradually brought the car to a stop and we stared at the man. Slowly, she backed the car up and managed to turn around. She said she wanted to go get my uncle for help. Slowly, we made our way back over the hill and my mother pulled into my uncle's driveway. She got out and went to the house. Soon, my mother appeared with my uncle who was carrying a blanket and another item. He got in and we turned around and started over the hill. No car had passed us and the light was good as it was still early. My uncle was concerned, wondering if the man was hitchhiking and had been messed up by hypothermia or something like that. As we drove over the hill, my uncle was leaning forward near the windshield, trying to see the man on the ground. As we approached where we stopped, we could see the man was no longer laying across the road. There was nothing, 
The snow beyond our tracks was untouched. We could see our tire tracks where we had stopped and where my mother turned around, but beyond that, the snow on the road was untouched. No car tracks, no animal tracks, no footprints. My uncle got out of the car, saying maybe the man rolled into the ditch or walked after us. He began to search the road in both the ditches, but found nothing. He returned to the car and told my mom to continue into town as he washed the ditches. Slowly, we drove into town but never saw any cars on the road or any marks on the sides of the road. The man has simply vanished. My uncle told my mom to go to the police so he could report it and then maybe get a ride back to his place with one of the patrolmen. My mother and I both reported the incident and we returned home. I have no explanation for what my mother and I saw. I hope maybe somebody in the comments will be able to help us out. About three years ago, my ex-boyfriend, his two friends, my brother, and I went on a night hike. This place is an old, abandoned amusement park off the side of a mountain with access up to the mountain from the amusement park location. This place is well known to the locals, and most people hike there in the day. I have a video of me exploring the amusement park itself with my very brave Boston Terrier. If anyone would like to see it, Maybe I'll send it into the channel. My ex-boyfriend had this photo that he asked his friend to send him. At first glance, I assumed his friend had photoshopped the picture. I will also send this in in the future if you guys would like to see it. I was skeptical because who the heck just takes random pictures of nothingness? I live in a cold state, so we all bundled up and headed up the torn asphalt towards the amusement park. I still remember the air feeling quite still. There was a snowstorm predicted to happen on Christmas Day, so the air had this creepy stillness to it, which made it a lot more exciting. As we headed up the grassy hill passing the amusement park and towards the mountain, things were getting a little intense. My ex-boyfriend, who is my ex for an awfully specific reason, brought along his beloved PBRs. The higher we got up the hillside of the mountain, the drunker he got. When we finally reached the top, they came across a radio tower. This excited my ex and my brother because for some reason they found the need to climb it. I started panicking and told them to get down. At this point, it started misting out. It seemed like the start of the storm. The air was electrifying, and I was extremely anxious. I realized I could not change their mind. So, I did what I could do, and I walked away. I could not stand the idea of seeing my brother plummet to the ground or getting electrocuted. I walked away and towards the tree line. I walked until I reached the side of the rocky cliff. It was way more comforting to be alone even in the darkness. I stood there enjoying the view of the many streetlights twinkling down below. I remember taking deep breaths and just feeling a lot less anxious. The view is always beautiful during the day, but at night it is a whole new experience. It was great until my ex and the whole crew came to join me, except for the idea of joining me was hanging off the side of a cliff. Like, literally cliffhanger style. Maybe they were inspired by those parkour videos. I don't know. But this set me off. Especially since my ex peer pressured my brother into doing it. I started to raise my voice and demanded them to stop. My ex found a small ledge off the side of the cliff to stand on. He yelled at me, Come here right now. You need to see this. 
I looked over the side and saw the descent our bodies would have to travel until finally reaching the rock bottom. He just kept pushing me to stand on the small ledge. After some time, stupid past version of me decided to give in. I inched my way to the ledge and he told me to turn around and look at the view. I felt like I wanted to cry. He said, isn't it beautiful? I've thought about the plummet. That is all. I wanted to climb back up to safety. I felt dizzy like the world around me was spinning. Finally, I climbed back up. My ex-boyfriend's foot slipped in front of me, and I surely thought that is when it was all over. He was able to catch himself, and I was just hyperventilating. I started to bawl my eyes out. They just would not stop playing that stupid cliffhanger stuff. My ex yelled at me and claimed I was crying to get attention from his two friends. This angered me. I tried to explain myself, but he would not listen. I was afraid for their lives. I was extremely shaken up and angry, so I decided to speed walk away from that whole thing. I walked and did not look back. I made my way through the brush and down the grassy hillside. I walked until I could not hear the ridicule from my ex or his criticizing laughter. When finally, I was all alone, by myself with my overreactive thoughts, with no light but just the moon above me as well as my dead phone. After about 20 minutes of walking, I started to reach the bottom of the hill. The abandoned amusement park buildings were to the left of me, and I had a clear view of the street in front of me. About a football field away, I noticed something that stopped me in my very tracks. I noticed a glowing figure made up of light almost floating up the street towards the amusement park. It was not any car lights because the gates of the amusement park were locked up. This was far away from any civilization to be some sort of illuminating light from a car. It was a figure, and a very tall one, about half the size of the trees around it. The figure illuminated the trees around it. It had massive wings. I distinctly saw what I saw, and as soon as I saw it, I crouched down into a ball with my head between my knees and cradled my head with my arms. I just wept. I was extremely scared and alone with no phone. I was afraid that this being would have seen me or done something to me. I was just way afraid to look up. I just sat there quietly sobbing and waiting to hear something. When after probably 10 minutes, I heard my boyfriend singing his stupid drunkard songs from a distance. When they saw me crying, he automatically assumed I was still upset, but when I explained what I had saw, they surprisingly believed me. We stood there staring out into the distance and finally decided to continue walking. We made it back to my car, but for quite a few days, I got very little sleep after this experience. I don't know what that creature was. I don't know if it had something to do with the poor weather conditions. I don't know if it's just something that haunts this mountain. But I'm never, ever going to explore that area, especially with those people. Not in the winter, not when it's snowing, and definitely not at nighttime. I have stories about both my farm and my boyfriend's farm that might be interesting to you and your show. Farms have a lot of history. My family has been farming in the exact same spot since the 1870s when my family arrived from Germany, and his family has been farming in the same area since the 1930s. Therefore, they have lots of tales and lots of history. My boyfriend's dad, I will call him my father-in-law because he basically is at this point, 
I swear has seen everything at least once, and has the most interesting stories. I will share a couple of his. For context, my boyfriend's family farms on both sides of the Iowa and Missouri border. Since they lived close to the state line, they have corn, soybeans, and beef cattle on pasture. I particularly loved the cattle, because I loved getting to jump in the ranger and ride around the pasture with my boyfriend to check on the cows. We do this almost every single night in the spring, summer, and fall to make sure they are healthy, not injured, account for the calves, and make sure they have enough grass. We also look to see if there are any holes or breaks in the fences. In the wintertime, they get moved around to a lot with a covered shed to protect them from the elements, so they are not in the pasture and we feed them hay. Anyway, in the mid-2000s, my father-in-law was out in the wooded area of the cattle pasture. The trees are quite dense here, and it often serves as a great deer hunting spot in the late fall and winter once the cows have been moved to the winter lot. He was setting up trail cameras in the woods to watch deer in preparation for hunting season that fall. After some time, he came back out to get the cart out of the camera to see if there were any big bucks roaming around the pasture. When he looked at some of the pictures, he saw that there had been an unusual man back there. Trespassers are not all that uncommon, and often it's just an annoyance rather than a cause for concern. There was no way to tell who it was, so he had just forgotten all about it. A few days later though, he went back to hang the camera back up in the tree. When my father-in-law went back a second time, about a week or so later to get the camera to see the pictures, someone had dug three makeshift graves in the back corner of the pasture. At the head of each grave was a wooden cross with the first name on it. He, unfortunately, did not catch the man on the trail camera, but he alerted the police about the situation. I think based on the names on the crosses, the police had an idea of who it could have been. The rural Midwest is a lot smaller than you think for being so vast. My father-in-law was not sure what came of that, but he never really looked too much into it. But if he had not discovered those graves in that pasture and alerted the police, they might have been filled. And by who? We don't know. For the second story, my father-in-law had some farms in Missouri that were bordered by the Missouri River. The Missouri River flows down through the Dakotas, along the Iowa and Nebraska border, and then at Kansas City, it takes a turn and divides the state of Missouri in two until it reaches the Mississippi. One spring in the late 1990s, he was out in a field next to the Missouri River, planting corn. This was before all the current high-tech tools that farmers have at their disposal now, which can tell you if you are having an issue with your machine right from the cab. He thought that his planter was having some issues, so he jumped out to check if something was broken, perhaps. When he got out of his tractor, he noticed a strange smell. It was a very bad smell. If you know anything about farming, planting season is a fast-paced time where you try to beat the weather and he was more concerned about getting his crop planted than investigating. He just assumed it was a dead deer washed up in the river and continued up until he thought the planter was having problems again just a few hours later. This time he was at the end of the field closer to the river. The smell was stronger and unlike anything he had ever experienced before. 
They continued that day working until one of the hired men asked if anyone noticed the bizarre smell coming from the river. My father-in-law said he had and wondered maybe it was a dead deer or something, but usually deer did not stink quite like this. One of the hired men wandered across the field to the edge of the river. It's not like it's a nice sandy beach that touches the ground, like a shoreline. Often, it is a rocky or steep overlook many feet down to the river below. They were trying to get a closer look. At the bottom, he saw what he thought was an animal tangled up in the branches washed up by the river. Looking closer, he realized it was a person. They immediately called the police. Turns out it was a missing woman who was known as a prostitute from the Kansas City area who made it very far down the stream somehow. I cannot find the exact article or name, and I do not know if the police ever told my father-in-law her name even though they briefly questioned him. But I do know there are a few articles of women being found in the river of East Kansas City in the late 1990s. Since the early 2000s, I had wanted my own small-scale farm. I think the popular term is a hobby farm. While I have no intention of having thousands of acres or a large herd of cattle, I am hoping to make a go of it year-round. Just this last year, I found 30 acres close to town. This specific parcel had been part of a larger farm, but was broken off for a member of the owner's family. The family member recently died, making way for my purchase. The house was in rather good shape, but the outbuildings had seen better days. I began the teardown immediately. With the help of some friends, I was able to get the barn completed in short order. I moved on to a second smaller storage building, the winter would slow our work, however, by late spring, the roof was all we had left. Most of it was completed when I had an accident. I was alone, putting on shingles, and lost my footing and fell. My arm was broken. The injury did not really stop me from working my real job. During the healing period, I took all the overtime I could. I had been avoiding it until then, but it is nice to have all the extra money. I plan on putting it towards supplies to build a chicken tractor and get some chickens. Unfortunately, during this time, I lost a family member of my own. He and I had been awfully close when I was growing up. Since my father spent much of his time on the road, his younger brother would need any help he could. Any major occasions my dad was unable to attend, my uncles always made sure to record it for him. It was a lot like having two dads. My mom also liked having him around. Most of her time was dedicated to my disabled sister. She feared I was not getting enough attention myself. You can see how important he had become to my family, and myself. His loss has been extremely hard on me. I found myself brooding on his death more than I should have, until this past week when I made a disturbing discovery in the woodshop. My doctor had given me the all clear. The cast was off and I was free to get back to the farm work. My friends had finished shingling for me, so I moved on to my last job, a decent-sized building used for woodworking and carpentry. The benches were still in good shape. I disassembled and stored them. After a cursory inspection, I determined the frame was still solid, so I started by pulling up the floor. The boards from which it was made were rotten and full of holes. I made it about halfway when I found an old tin box under a loose board. It was square and about the size of a lunchbox. Inside, I discovered a few old trinkets and a stack of photographs. 
The trinkets included some rings, an old lighter, and even a metal barrette with a bow on it. The photos had been placed face down. I pulled out a stack and turned them over. Most of these images were of nude or partially clothed women. They looked to be from the 80s and 90s. Many were old and faded. As I flipped through, something struck me as odd about them. Soon, I realized what it was. None of the women were smiling. A lot looked scared, in fact. I began turning them over and discovered each had a name and a year written on the back. Myra, 1988. Sybil, 1991. Stephanie, 1983. I counted and found 42 in total. These are not your average dirty pictures. The models did not look pleased to be taking them. At that moment, a terrible idea popped into my head. I had seen something like this before. I had watched a documentary about a serial killer. The cops had found loads of pictures in his home. Many of the women had yet to be identified. I also remembered some killers liked to keep objects from their victims. I pulled up a plain gold band out of the box. I turned it around until I saw a name engraved in the side. The name matched one of the women in the pictures. A terrified blonde from 1981. A shiver ripped through my body. Had I found a serial killer's photo stash? In the middle of Kansas of all places? That is where my ideas seemed to fall flat. I did some research and I could not find a killer active at that time. Not in this part of the state. Maybe I had jumped to conclusions and the pictures were not that bad. I recognized the possibility that these deaths occurred under the radar. It is simply hard to believe 42 women disappeared without anyone noticing. 42? That number still amazes me. But it was a time before DNA and cameras. It wouldn't be too crazy to see how anyone could get away with taking 42 people's lives and not be caught. My biggest problem with this whole theory, though, is... I don't know. How, how is he not caught? Likely, this was just some creep who kept his sex trophies under the floor of his woodshop. Maybe that is all. But what if... Frankly, I change my opinion every few minutes. I have sat on this box for over a week, unable to decide if I should go to the cops. Just last night I had a nightmare. A dirty old man killed a woman in front of me. I tried to tell people, but no one would listen. I woke up soaked in sweat and shaking. That was the last straw. I have decided that I'm going to give it to the cops tomorrow. What happens after that is up to them. I just want to go back to my normal life, a simple wannabe farmer. However, if I hear anything new, I will write in an update. Just between us, I hope it turns out to be nothing. If it is what I think it is, it means somebody got away with 42 murders and was never punished for it. That is perhaps the most terrifying thing. This was the incident that taught me you can never truly know someone, even after 20 years. When I was about five years old, I was shipped off to a kindergarten. At the time, I was a very shy and quiet girl. I was standing off by myself when this chubby little boy approached me. We will call him Sonny for the story. Sonny began talking to me and mentioned his family owned a farm close to mine. I was curious and asked which one. The two of us spoke together until nap time. 
we soon became good friends. On the weekends, one of us would ride our bikes over to each other's farm to play. Not many kids lived in the area, so it was just us most of the time. By middle school, we were like siblings. He was even my first kiss, although it meant nothing to either one of us. Early in high school, we would date other people and see other people at parties. I do not think either one of us ever thought of each other in anything more than platonic terms. It stayed this way into our junior year. I was eager to go to prom, but no one had asked me. I heard Sonny did not have a date, so I asked him. He said yes, but as a favor to an old friend. On the night of the prom, some of our classmates rented a hotel room to party in. Both of us had way too much to drink and ended up making out. The next day, we talked about what had happened. It was ultimately decided that we should start dating. If nothing more than to make sure it was not the booze that caused our actions. For the rest of that year and the next, we continued dating. Things seemingly were going well. When the time came, we lost our V-cards together. It was special, but the relationship did not go on to be very intimate. We were basically the same friends we had always been. The only difference was that we never dated anyone else and occasionally had sex. Overall, it may have been the happiest time of my life. Sonny had always treated me well, and even then, when I left for college, he understood breaking up was for the best. We kept in touch, calling one another about once a month. This was how I found out he had started seeing one of our classmates. Rose was the same age as us and a nice girl. She stayed in town and was going to our local community college. When I visited for the holidays, I would hang out with them. They made a cute couple, and I said so. Rose's past, on the other hand, was not a happy one. From what I heard, she had been messed with as a child. This had done considerable damage to her psychological being, and she had attempted suicide at least once. In middle school, she was institutionalized. She returned our freshman year and seemed a lot happier. We all assumed her demons had been conquered and the self-harming behavior was in the past. This is why her disappearance and presumed suicide was such a disappointing thing to all who knew her. According to Sunny, they had had a fight over dinner or something else equally stupid. After this, she became gradually more and more disconnected. One afternoon, she was supposed to be on her way to his house but never showed up. He called around looking for her until finally reporting her missing the next morning. A county-wide search was undertaken and her car was found parked at the rest stop beside one of our larger bridges. No sounds of foul play were discovered. So, the case was ruled a probable suicide. I heard about it on Facebook and called Sunny to express my condolences. We only spoke briefly and it was clear her death hit him hard. The next few years flew by fast. Before I knew it, I was graduating with no real prospects. I figured moving back home was my best option. Dad could always use an extra hand. Sonny's mother, his last remaining member, had passed the year before prior to Rose. He inherited the farm and made a little money. He invested it in a few pigs and a bunch of chickens. By the time of my return, the chickens were paying off. There were these fancy free-range ones that were popular with upscale restaurants. They were smaller than usual, but unbelievably delicious. He and I began hanging out again and soon discovered we still had feelings for each other. The relationship moved quickly until I was staying at his place almost every night. Meanwhile, at this same time, a new DA was elected and she had reopened Rose's case, unknown to anyone. Nobody I know is aware of her reason, but it is not very important. What is, is that she had several powerful friends. With little more than a hunch, 
she had given the warrant to search his house. I was not around when it was executed. I had just got a job working with disabled children at a daycare. Sonny never mentioned it happened, let alone that they had found blood. Luminol had been sprayed in various rooms. The kitchen showed small amounts on the cabinets. However, the largest amount was found around the tub and the drain. I walked around completely oblivious for another four months. DNA test had confirmed all the blood samples belonged to Rose. Once again, I was working when Sonny was arrested. For some crazy reason, he did not ask for a lawyer immediately. He was doing well. He could have hired himself a great one. Instead, he let them grill him for hours. Maybe he thought he was smarter and could convince them they had messed up. If that was it, his hubris was his undoing. For over four hours, the cops hammered him. He always had a plausible reason for almost every question. Why was her blood in the kitchen? Well, maybe she cut her finger while preparing a meal. Why did we find so much blood in the shower and drain? Maybe she had a bloody nose. I wish she was here to tell you. This battle continued until one of the officers tried a new angle. Can you explain why you were seen driving Rose's car in the direction of the bridge that evening that she went missing, and then seen by the same person returning on foot the following morning? Well, I am paraphrasing of course, but something like that was what tripped him up. No one had witnessed anything of the sort. Sonny did not know this though. When he had no answers, they knew they had him and attacked. Soon after, he broke and admitted to killing her. They finally had the confession they needed, but one question remained. Where was Rose's body? Other than admitting he had dismembered her and disposed of her parts, the full story never reached the public. I only heard because I happened to be in a restaurant with a police officer involved in the case. He was a friend of ours, a few years older, and was having drinks with a group of us. He had a lot to drink. One of the guys had been nagging him for inside information all night, and that was when he spit it out. I personally wish I had never heard it. To be as brief as possible, after he had dismembered her body in the bathtub, he intended to bury the remains in one of the pastures. He thought it through and decided against it, mainly because he was afraid of coyotes or other scavengers. This was where our friend hesitated. Well, come on man, don't be a tea, say it. We were all on the edge of our seats. The guy pushed harder. Our friend gulped the last of his beer and then blurted it out. He fed her to the pigs, man. Is that what you want to hear? Your friend, a girl who had never heard a fly, he chopped her up and fed her to his pigs. We were all struck dumb. It was the last thing I would have expected. I had had a hard enough time wrapping my head around my best friend being a murderer. But when I heard that, any shred of respect I still had for him melted away. This case had obviously affected everyone involved greatly, even this young cop, a guy who had known Sonny and most of us. A few seconds passed before he stood up and stormed off to get another drink. After being served, he sat alone at another table and cried for several minutes. I had been home from work for just a few minutes when he called. I told him I would head over after showering. I did not give him a chance to speak. Once I had shut up, he spoke calmly and quickly. I still remember every word. I'm sorry, Sandy. I did something terrible. You and I are not going to see each other again. Thank you for being my friend. I will always love you. Goodbye. Then he hung up. I did not understand. I called his house right away and got no answer. None of it made any sense. He had never done as much as jaywalk in his life. Then Rose's death flashed in my head. What had he done? Why would he confess to something he did not do? I was so upset... 
I could not think straight. I think I was still crying when the news came on. I had not known about the DNA results. It was still almost impossible to believe he had done it. No reason was really stated, and I still do not think he has ever given one. Since he had confessed, the DA took the death penalty off the table. A deal was cut for life with possible parole after 30 years. I tried to talk to him at the hearing, but he just ignored me. After he had been led away, his lawyer handed me a note. It simply stated not to try to contact him. Move on and find someone who isn't a monster. Any hope I had crumbled in that courtroom. A friendship of over 20 years ended in the blink of an eye. The most important man in my life, bar my father. I had not gone over a month without talking to him since I was five years old. It has been a very hard loss to overcome, and I'm not sure I'll ever be able to trust someone like that again. This happened in the late 1980s. I was working at a seed and feed store in the northern United States one day. I happened to notice a post on our community bulletin board. It was for a job as a caretaker on a nearby farm. This had aroused my curiosity, so I had given them a call. The job turned out to only be temporary, which made it even more alluring. I'd been wanting to move back to Florida for some time, and the higher pay would make that possible, and sooner. The number on the posting belonged to the owner's children. They needed a caretaker to fill in for their elderly father. He had had a stroke the month prior, and it was expected it would take six to nine months, possibly more, for him to rehabilitate. In the meantime, he would be living at a rehab facility, so they were looking for a single person or a couple to live on the farm. There was no crop to plant or harvest, only a pair of horses that required basic care and exercise whenever possible. I provided a brief list of my past jobs and a few references. They promised to get back to me and hung up. It was almost a week until I heard from them again. They wanted to offer me the job. Naturally, I took it and moved in that weekend. The place was not much anything fancy. A modest three-bedroom home and a couple of large outbuildings built on 125 acres. My day consisted of mucking out the stalls and providing fresh food and water for the horses. When I finished that, a few times a week, I would saddle up one of them and go for a ride around the property. This was all before lunch. After, I would take some care of some little things that would need fixing. If there was not any work left, I would pass out in front of the TV until dinner. Overall, it was a pretty cushy job as far as farm work goes. The owner's kids would call or swing by on occasion, but I had the place to myself for the most part. I had been there around seven months when my prep for lunch was interrupted by a pounding on the door. I answered it and was greeted by a swarm of guys in suits and FBI jackets. They had handed me some papers and said they had a warrant to search the property. I honestly had no idea what to say, so I told them the circumstances and I had to call the owner's family. They seemed a bit miffed but understood. I rang the family up and they told me to let them do their job and stay out of their way. They would contact their lawyer and they would handle it. I said okay and let them do their thing. They appeared to have been looking for something. The house was left alone. Instead of searching any buildings, a truck with a trailer carrying a backhoe drove toward the back of the property. They passed out of my view and I returned to making my lunch. Cars came and went for the next few hours. I dozed back off in front of the TV. Later that day, I was awakened by ruckus out front. I peeked out the curtains and saw a swarm of news vans and cameras camped out on the front lawn. 
One of them saw me and shouted, There he is! I was still groggy and had no clue what was going on. A group of reporters and cameras rushed out toward the window. I jerked the curtain closed fast and returned to my post on the couch. I flipped through the channels until I caught sight of my house. What exactly was happening was not clear at first. I wiped the sweet from my eyes and turned up the volume. On the screen, an anchor was talking to another guy over the phone while footage of the farm was being shown. The man over the phone mentioned a guy who had disappeared some years prior. A member of the Mafia, supposedly. Then, footage switched to the helicopter view of the backfield. A bunch of the same FBI guys and some state officers were standing next to the bobcat. Next to that, a big hole had been dug. The helicopter scanned over from the hole, and we saw two black bags laying next to one another on the ground. To anyone who has ever seen one, they were obviously body bags, and they looked to have bodies in them. My jaw must have been dragging on the floor. I felt drool rolling down my chin and wiped it away. I was freaking out. What the hell have I gotten myself into? I needed some answers, and I needed them now. I called the family back and told them what was going on. They said they were aware, but not to worry about it. I was not in any danger, legally or otherwise. I was told to stay in the house and not to talk to the media. They had been notified I was not involved in any way and should be leaving soon. None of this made me feel any better, though, but there was not much I could do, at least at that moment. I hung up and went back to watching the news coverage. As the hours grounded on, the story became clearer. The bodies belonged to two mob guys who had disappeared a few years earlier. The scariest part of the revelation, though, a nice old man who owned the farm was a longtime mob associate. The entire mess had me twisted in knots. I tossed and turned the whole night. I could not decide whether to quit or stay on for the remainder. The world of organized crime was foreign to me and something I had no desire to be involved in. On the other hand, this was my dream job. I had been treated well and seen no sign of criminal activity. Even as I dialed the phone that morning, I was not sure what I would say. However, the moment they answered, my mouth made the choice for me. I said I was calling them to let them know I was giving my one week's notice. Any longer was just out of the question. While my time at the farm was wonderful, the recent events were playing on my mind heavily. The owner's daughter who answered, she tried to talk me out of quitting, but I guess she could tell I was afraid. She quickly relented and thanked me for doing such a great job. I briefly felt a tinge of guilt, but my brain took over. I thanked her and we ended the call. The media had eventually moved on, so I was free to finish my week in peace. The feds must have gotten all they needed that first day because there was no sign of them after that. I rode one of the horses down to the gravesite the next morning, mainly out of curiosity. The hole had been filled in, and other than some tire tracks, the area looked rather normal. I don't know what I was expecting. I soon lost interest and returned to the stables. The morning I moved out, the owner's kids showed up to give me the rest of my pay and said goodbye. They were going to stay at the house until they found a replacement. I recommended a few people and provided their numbers. We made some small talk until I loaded the last of my things. They wished me good luck and I pulled away. I pointed my truck south toward Florida and arrived a few days later. I've been here ever since. I had intended on ending it here but I realize some of you may be wondering what became of the case. Well, the fact is I had no clue until I read up on it prior to writing this. It appears nothing would happen for a long time. The feds had some suspects, but no one was really talking. Then, just after the new millennium began, they got the witnesses they needed. A slew of gangsters involved was convicted, 
and will likely die in prison. The family who owned the farm, I have no idea what became of them. The job was great and they treated me well, but that is where it all ends for me. Behind closed doors, they were into some very crooked stuff. Stuff I did not want to be roped into. I am a simple fella, and my family and my life has been great since. I do not regret leaving that place for a single second. This story was relayed to me by my aunt. A woman and her family who lived opposite next to her house were the very first residents of a region located in the outskirts of the main town called Headquarter, and these incidents occurred when there were no inhabitants at all besides them. The place was untouched, which means there were still lots of trees and the area was quite bushy. So one night, when the woman and her children were just lying around in their living room, a knock came on their door. As it was dark and kind of late, she was reluctant to open the door, so she checked who it was from the window, and can see through the veranda. She saw a dog in front of the door, so she just ignored it and left it be. The knock came again, and there it was, the same dog from before. This time, though, she noticed that the animal was sort of huge, to the point to where it looked unusual. To say it was some sort of creature would be wrong since it looked exactly like a dog. At this point, she grew uneasy. There was absolutely no one. No one to prank them. And, and that dog. It was just impossible that it would be able to knock. It was all so odd. She ignored it. And then she and her family went to bed. The old woman told my aunt that the knock came all night long. Another incident took place. This time in the bedroom, she woke up in the middle of the night to find a person or some sort of dark thing that looked like someone crouched down near the bed, and shortly after, it disappeared in front of their eyes. My aunt said that these were not the only cases she and her family experienced. It happened so much to the point where her children were not even scared by the activities anymore. When the old woman was on her deathbed, it was said that she saw a black shadow thing crouched next to her bed the whole time that she was ill and she was not even scared at all. Thank you for sharing this on your channel Swamp. I hope to write you more about some of the stories experienced by my relatives and friends. As I come from a small town in India, let me tell you, paranormal activities are pretty common, dare I even say, daily. I love your channel, your voice, and would like to contribute to these stories. This happened when I was about eight or nine years old. Growing up, I spent most of my time with my grandmother. My father, uncle, and of course my grandfather all lived in the same house as my grandmother. Because of this, I used to spend a lot of time with my uncle and dad. I was an only child, so my uncle and father spent a lot of time playing jokes on me. One night, I was laying on my grandma's bed talking to her about God knows what nonsense. The way I was laying was sort of weird. I was facing her, but one of my arms were positioned behind my back. I remember her asking me if I was actually comfortable like that. It was a pretty odd position, I must admit. Anyways, during our conversations, I saw hands on the ground as if they were crawling in my peripherals. 
I immediately thought it must be my dad or uncle trying to spook me, so I played it cool, thinking I would surprise them as soon as they were behind me. I kept my conversation going with my grandmother, as if I did not suspect a thing, and the next thing you know, someone was grabbing my hand and pulling me down. I laughed and turned my head, expecting to see my father or uncle, only to be met with nothing. This thing had me in a tight grip, and I could not fully turn around. It pulled me harder, and I screamed. My grandma tried to pull me up. She grabbed my hand and pulled me back onto the bed as I heard my uncle and father coming through the front door. When the thing finally let up, I spun around only to see two hands reaching out from under the bed. I was flipping out, crying and screaming for my father to check under the bed. My grandma was the kind of person to keep all sorts of memorabilia, and she put a lot of it under her bed for safekeeping. There was no way anyone could fit under the bed. My dad and uncle searched the house only to find nothing. They went up and down the hallways, everywhere. My grandmother was convinced that I was just wrapped up in the blankets and started to fall. But that, unfortunately, does not explain the hands I saw. To this day, I have no explanation as to what it was or what would have happened if those hands managed to pull me all the way from my grandmother. First, to make my story make sense, I need to give some backstory. I come from an Irish family, the older generations of which are deeply religious. Anytime my great-grandmother saw one of her male descendants, be it a son, a grandson, or a great-grandson, she would always say my boys have the devil's eyes. One of the first memories I have of her is me sitting on her lap and her holding my face to look me in the eyes and say this. I always just figured it was because all the men in our family had eyes similar in shape and color, and that we had gotten it from my biological great-grandfather, who I never met or saw photos of since my great-grandma remarried after his death. Even in grandma's old age, when she was battling Alzheimer's and could not remember her daughters or their names, she always recognized her boys, even if she did not know our names. With that all out of the way, I can tell you what we found now. My grandmother has passed away. We are keeping the house and the family and plan on keeping animals in the small field behind the house. That means we will be digging holes for fencing across the property. My grandfather and I are the ones doing most of the work, since we live the closest. This can be hard work, especially in the hills of West Virginia. After hours of working my digger, I hit something that made a hollow clanging noise. This wasn't a rock, and whatever it was, someone had buried it deep. It was also stopping any more progress as the hole needed at least another foot or so. I picked up something to try to break through. A long, heavy piece of metal with a harsh wedge. And with my curiosity, full start, start digging around this and try to pry it loose. It comes eventually, and is now sitting lengthwise in this hole. So I lay on the ground to reach my arm down, almost to the shoulder to try and get a grip on this and pull it out. After a few more minutes of struggling, out comes a long, skinny lockbox, maybe six inches in width and about a foot long. The small lock on it is rusted and a good smack with the rock breaks it open. Inside are old photos. Nothing too spectacular. Just a few of my great-grandma, some of my grandpa, and I believe their siblings as kids. There was a bunch of little writings about what was happening when the picture was taken as well. 
There is one that sticks out, though. It was lying face down in the box, with no writing on the back. But it was like it was calling to me. I figured it was just my curious nature, and I flipped it over. Pictured as my great-grandmother. I believe she was in a plush-looking high-back chair. A man stands on her left, one hand on the top of the chair, and the other on her shoulder, and on the other side of the chair is a black mist. It is vaguely in the shape of a man, but it is massive. If the man standing next to my great-grandmother is six feet tall, this thing would be nine. It gives off this aura of hate and anger, even through the picture. Its eyes are the worst part. Its eyes are such a striking green. It is like looking through me into my soul. I dropped the picture like it burned me and whipped it across the ground a bit. It's not my proudest moment. At this point, my grandpa has made his way over to me and looks down at the photos. He gives me a mixed look of anger and fear. He crouches down, scoops up the picture and the lockbox, and carries it off, giving me a gruff, get back to it, before disappearing into the house. Still shaken up, I take a moment to collect myself before I do anything else. I don't want to keep digging without at least having my wits about me. After about 15 minutes, he comes back out and grabs me by the shoulders and takes a deep breath before saying, Don't tell anybody about that box. His tone brokered no argument or question. I just numbly nodded my head. He gives me a slight smile before patting my shoulder and moving off again to keep working. I do the same, moving on to another posting site. That was about two weeks ago now, and I have had a terrible sense of being stalked and terrible nightmares. I keep waking up from dreams of being followed in the forest by something with glowing green eyes. I swear I see things out of the corner of my eye at home now, too. I walked past a storefront in town the other day and thought I saw something tall following just behind me and bent over to look down at me. Either I have lost my mind, or the thing in that picture has come back, and I really, I really, really hope that I'm just crazy. This is a true story that happened to me. It is honestly bone chilling. Anyways, this is the story of the man in my closet. I think I just call it a man because I do not want to believe it was anything else. Well, I guess let me explain. Ever since I was younger, I hated the closet. I am not sure why, but it was just an irrational fear of mine. In my old house, I was convinced there was some thing or... I guess this so-called man in my closet. I was 12 at the time. I often heard scratching, knocking, and tapping in my closet. But after a while, I just got used to it and tried my best to ignore it. At the time, I had a loft bed. If you do not know what that is, it is basically a bunk bed without the bottom bunk. Instead, the bed frame sits on a dresser and a desk. You must climb a ladder to get up to it. When you first walk into my room... There is a closet by the right corner, and once you walk in, if you look to your left, there is a small TV. Across from the TV was my bed. Sorry if this is a poor description, but my bed was on the front wall that you see when you walk into the room on the left corner. So the side of my bed was across from the TV going the long way facing the closet. So when I climbed up the ladder, my feet would be facing the closet and my head would be near the window on the left wall in between the bed and the TV. 
I hope that made sense. My small TV was kind of like a touchscreen TV. In the bottom right hand corner of the TV there was an on and off button and a volume button that you needed to tap to turn it off and on. There was no remote so would have to climb down and turn it on and off or to adjust the volume by touching the buttons. Now my TV makes a very distinctive sound. When you turn it on or turn it off, it makes a little doodaloo, high-pitched kind of noise. Well, one night, I went up to bed late. I was having some trouble falling asleep, but once I did, something weird happened. I do not remember what time it was exactly, but in my half-asleep state, I heard my TV turn on. I turned over to my side and looked at my TV. Its blue light was illuminating my room, and there was no one there. I immediately heard footsteps, so I reached for my glasses that were sitting on my window seal. Now these were not your ordinary footsteps. I had hardwood floors, and it was a distinct creaking sound when you walk over them because of your body weight. These were just light, quick steps running out of my room. When I put my glasses on, I looked at the doorway. There was a tall, dark, lengthy figure standing there looking at me. Or I think it was because it did not have a face or eyes that I could discern. It was just fuzzy looking. My heart started pounding. I chucked my pillow at it, and I wanted to cry. I saw the figure walk into the closet as it closed the door slowly. I swear I heard a creepy, raspy voice in my left ear. Look at me. I swear to God this was something straight out of a horror film. I turned so fast my head spun. There was nothing there. Suddenly, the closet door slammed the rest of the way shut. I sat there mortified, and just stared at the closet crying. After a few hours, I guess I ended up falling asleep. I do not remember much after that. This was about two years ago. I moved into a new house, and what I did immediately was take my closet doors off their hinges. I am 14 now, and they, or that so-called man, has never come back. And I hope they never do. Hello Swamp Dweller, I'm a huge fan of the channel and always listen to the stories while I work. I have always wanted to share my own story but just either kept forgetting or just did not have the time. I have a couple of stories for you and everyone on the channel, including my own personal story. I will tell my personal story first and then the rest that has been told to me by my family another day. A little bit of background on my family and the house we live in. I was about maybe 7 or 8 when I used to live in Coachella with my family before I was placed into foster care. We had a one-story house at the end of a cul-de-sac. It was a big house as well. The moment you walk through the front door, you are greeted by the very spacious living room. A little to the right and far in the back of the living room was a kitchen, which was small, now that I remember. To the left of the front door was a little corridor leading down to the hallway. To the left of the corridor was a room that we called the back room. That was at the end of the hallway. That room was always empty, besides an old bed frame and a mattress, a couple of empty boxes, and some old furniture. Every time someone or I went into that room, it was always ice cold. It always gave me the creeps, and I always kept my distance from the back room. My grandma always said that the AC did not actually work in that room or something to that extent. Next to the very right of the back room was the garage door, then to the very right of that corridor was a long hallway with the three rooms on the left that we all slept in. 
my brother Gregory, who was two years younger than me, and my baby brother Julian, who was still sleeping in a crib. But we had gotten him a little bed to sleep on once he was old enough. That was on the right side of the room up against the wall, and just to the left was the big bed me, my brother, and sister Selena, who was a year younger than me, shared. Then literally right next to my room was my cousin's room. The moment you investigate her room, you immediately see her bed to the right and her dresser to the left. These descriptions of the rooms are necessary to better illustrate the story. Then, all the way at the end of the hallway, right across from my grandma's room was my Aunt Leslie's room. Finally, in the very middle of the hallway rift, across from mine and my cousin's room, was the bathroom which we always had the door open to and the light on because that was our only source of light during the night, as we didn't have any ceiling lights or anything like that in the hallway. I did not know at first until the night of my experience, but our house was supposedly haunted. The very cliché type of haunted house. A father, mother, and a daughter. Apparently, they had died in a fire long time ago. Something out of a movie, which is why I did not really believe it at first. There were a total of ten people living in that house. I will not name them all because only four of us were in the house the night of my experience. On that night, everyone had gone out except my Aunt Leslie, Cousin Brittany, and my sister Selena and myself. We were in my aunt's room having a movie night. Sometime during the night, my cousin Brittany wanted some food, so she asked if her mom could go get her some food. As she was getting up to head to the kitchen, she asked me if I could go with her because she was also afraid of being alone in the house, especially at night. So I agreed, and I do not know why, but I just always must be in front of someone when we are walking down the hallway. I just always feel like someone or something is right behind me, and it always makes me feel extremely uncomfortable. So I asked my aunt if I could go in front of her, but she was already out the door before I could get in front of her. Another small detail about the hallway is that it was exceedingly small and narrow, so it was hard to pass someone who was in front of you. So knowing this, I was not able to pass my aunt in front of me, but she kept reassuring me that I will be fine. So, for once, I did not feel scared about it and just decided to be a big boy and stay behind my aunt all the way down the kitchen. So, while we were walking down the hallway, both my room and my cousin's room's doors were both wide open with the lights off. Even though I was being brave, I could not bring myself to investigate either room. We make it to the kitchen, and my aunt decides to make a cup of noodles for my cousin. After about five minutes of preparing the noodles, we start to head back. Me, still being brave, I was behind my aunt once again on the way back to her room. As we were approaching my room on the left, I get this sudden urge to just investigate the room. That was a mistake. The moment I investigate the room, I see a very dark shape of what looked like to be a man standing with his back to us, looking out my bedroom window into the side of our backyard. I immediately ran past my aunt screaming and crying. I know, I'm a huge baby. As I'm running past her, I knock the cup of noodles out of her hands and it spills all over the floor, also burning her in the process. Man, did I want to get away from that room as fast as possible. My aunt then immediately chases me, because well, of course she was very frightened, as well, even though, she did not see a single thing. When we got back into her room, I am in tears and just losing my mind from what I saw. My sister and cousin, seeing me so frightened, were totally scared as well. My cousin Brittany even started crying. My aunt then asked what the heck happened, and I explained exactly what I saw. Of course, adults always say it was just our imagination or something. 
My aunt then goes back to clean up the mess that I had caused. She returns to the room after about an hour, and I am calm again. And my cousin is still hungry. She is calm as well after crying for a bit from being scared. So again, she asks her mom to get her some food, so my aunt asks if I will go with her again. And at first I said no, but my aunt then says that she will let me be in front of her, so after some time I finally agree to go again. All the way back to the kitchen, I was terrified. I could not bring myself to investigate either room again, and we make it to the kitchen, where, after another five minutes, my aunt has another cup of noodles made, hot and ready for my cousin. On the way back to the room, of course I am in front, but I am still too scared to investigate my room again, being a seven-year-old and dumb as I was. I decide to be brave and just take a peek. I saw nothing. There is no one there. It's like whatever it was, was in my imagination or something. So, as we continued walking, I decided to investigate my cousin's room. Yet again, another dumb mistake. There was that same, very dark shape of a man, but instead of him standing and looking out the window, he was just sitting on my cousin's bed, facing the TV, so I could only see the side of him. But I saw his whole body, his legs, his arms. It was like looking at a real person. He was just completely black. He just had his hands on his lap, doing nothing, staring off into oblivion. I bolt it back to the room, this time screaming and crying even harder than before. It's also funny because my aunt drops the noodles again after chasing me from getting so scared. Once we get to the room, my cousin and sister are now overly concerned and start freaking out just as much as me. It took my aunt about 20 minutes to calm us all down and for her to ask me what actually happened. I told her exactly what I saw and this time she believed me. She was now too scared to go into the hallway by herself, so she asked if my sister would go with her to clean up the noodles on the floor. That was my personal experience in that house. I was not the only one who says they saw something weird in that the house either. My mother had also seen this guy one night as she got up late in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. My baby brother was still sleeping in his crib, so his bed to the left of us was still not used. When my mom got up to use the bathroom, she says she saw the black shape of a man just laying on it. She rubbed her eyes to get a better look, but he was gone. Uh, my mom also said she heard a little girl. It is funny, because while I lived with my sister and two brothers, she was never up past what we were, and she was always sleeping. It's just a weird set of events that I don't know if I'll ever really be able to explain.